This episode of the Paddock Pass Podcast is brought to you by Fly Racing. Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass Podcast presented by Fly Racing. Steve English, David Emmett, Neil Morrison and Adam Wheeler here on a busy week for the Paddock Pass Podcast because now it's Moto2 season preview time. And uh, David, it's always uh, an action-packed start to the season for uh, for journalists and for podcasts and for everything, just try and get as much content as possible ready. But this has been a flat out week for us. Obviously, we've already had our Moto GP season preview. Now it's Moto Two, and tomorrow it's Moto Three. Uh, yeah, exactly. And um, in between that, I've also done uh, a couple of podcasts with the Dutch Eurosport. So it's uh, it's it is flat out. But you know, it it's a good sign. It means bikes are back. Yeah, we're happy enough for you to talk to the Dutch lads because it just sounds like you're speaking backwards. Neil, you're not going <laughs> to abandon us for any other podcast, though, are you? Uh, certainly not. I may have made one fleeting appearance on a, a rival podcast at some point over the winter, but uh, no, my, my heart remains with you guys, which shows just how little I know about how this world works. <laughs> <laughs> you must be so lonely, Neil, sitting in a hotel room in Qatar if your heart goes out to myself, David and Adam. Yeah. Well, Adam, I can understand. Exactly, yeah. Well, midway through a 24-hour quarantine period upon arrival in Qatar. So, uh, yeah, with this amount of loneliness I'm feeling, even uh, yeah, even spending some time with you guys seems quite appealing. Yeah, and the housewife's favourite, Adam Wheeler, of course, on the Paddock Pass podcast. And we know that he's the favourite because after being on the show for four years, Neil, it was finally, once Adam got involved, that your mom actually signed up at patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass podcast. That says all you need to know about Adam Wheeler. Susan and I have our own connection. So, um, <laughs> hi, Susan. That seems like it's going to be a podcast in itself. Let's get things back on topic, Adam, then. Uh, obviously enough for uh, Moto2 ad, there's a lot of excitement ahead of this season. Big assignment, Steve. I think Triumph are going to win it. There's a good chance. I think Dunlop are going to come up with the goods as well. Yeah, and if, if you really want to put your neck in the line, I think Calix might actually win the championship as well. Well, will they, Neil? Because obviously they're, they're, it isn't just the Calyx bikes in the class. We've obviously got speed-ups out there as well. There's the uh, Ford Racing MV. So there's, there is a little bit of variety to the NTS as well. So it's not a surefire guarantee, surely, that uh, Calyx are going to go out and win it. There's no speed-ups anymore, Steve. Well, fair enough. The, what, what, what did they call this here, Ad? Boscoscuro, named after Luca Boscoscuro, the team manager. Thanks, Dave. I was going to try to pronounce it. I mean, I was going to get probably Bossa Nova or something like that. But, uh, you know, yeah, no, you did it for me there. Yeah, the old box and clever bikes, Neil, they, they look like they could be fairly, fairly handy. Yeah, they do. Yeah, the Bosco's Girl B21, uh, to give it its full title. Sounds like a, uh, a fighter jet from uh, the 1930s and 1940s, to be honest. But, um, yeah, I mean, Speed Up had a pretty rubbish season, I think, by uh, 2019 standards last year. Um, and I think with Aaron Kinnett, they've got a rider, young talent that um, looks really fast, has been fast so far in preseason testing. So, yeah, you would hope that the Speed Ups will be up there to give uh, Calix something to think about this year because... I, you don't want it to be a bit of a Calyx Cup like it has been on certain occasions um, throughout uh, Moto2's existence. Well, Aaron Connett looks like something. I'm not sure if he's a fast rider. It remains to be seen. People will be looking at him, that's for sure. I mean, there's more than a fair share of ink on that guy. What he spends his win bonuses on. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, let's, let's uh, talk about Connett then because obviously last year, Neil, we saw that uh, he came in, surprised a lot of people at the start of the season, adapted really well to a Moto2 bike. 
but it's not easy for the riders in that class. We saw that from the year before. Jorge Navarro was really good as a rookie and then really struggled last year. Like, what's the issue that riders have adapting in the class? I guess it is, you know, adapt. It depends where you come from, I guess. Um, you know, if you come from um, the Moto3 class, then I think you're basically trying to learn how to pick the bike up and uh, exit the corner in the, the right way. Um, I think that's become even more uh, important and crucial since Triumph became the uh, the main engine supplier in the class, or the, the sole engine supplier in the class at the start of 2019. Um, and then if you're coming from somewhere like Superbike, it's probably just getting used to the tires and getting used to the kind of the the way the engine works and um, you're getting used to the stiffness of a, a full prototype chassis. Um, and I think, you know, we have to take that into consideration because this year it looks like Jake Dixon, who's come from Superbike, is going to be a bit of a player in the class. And also Cameron Bobier, five-time American Superbike champion, is uh, entering the class. So, um, yeah, I think that is going to be more important than ever, seeing how the Superbike guys can get on in this category than it has before. And Neil, obviously, just to go back to Canada, his teammate for this year is actually going to be Albert Arenas, the reigning Moto3 world champion. And uh, they're obviously on what had been the speed-ups from previous years on the Aspar bikes. But uh, when you look at that team, it, on paper, it looks like a really strong lineup. It does, yeah. Possibly even stronger than the uh, the official uh, Bosque Scuro team uh, run by Luca Bosque Scuro with Navarro and uh, Yari Montella, who's a, a bit of a bit of a whiz kid from the European Moto2 Championship, but that hasn't really um, meant anything when former European Moto2 champions have stepped up into the World Championship. Yeah, I think um, Canada is going to be um, an interesting challenger this year. We spoke to Sam Lowe's, obviously, Steve, um, recently uh, for the podcast, and uh, we asked him about who the challengers are going to be this year. Canada was one of the first names that he said, so uh, yeah, I think we have to take him seriously. Yeah, we're going to hear from Sam now, actually, because one of the questions we asked him as well was that adaptation to a Grand Prix bike. Obviously, for Sam, it was coming from a World Supersport bike to then go to a much stiffer bike in the Moto2 World Championship. He jumped straight onto a speed up in 2014. And he was talking in terms of how difficult it was to understand that change and then get the most from it. That's obviously a change that a lot of riders have to deal with. A lot of riders stepping up from the Moto3 class this year also have to change their styles. So let's get the chance to listen to Sam Lowe's third in the World Championship last year. Sam, we're looking forward to the 2021 Moto2 season. And obviously this is a great opportunity for you again. We saw last year, big step forward from you again. Yeah, of course, he's uh, looking forward to the new season in, in a positive way. Always after a good... Uh, a good season the year before it gives you a nice motivation in the winter and uh, yeah just can't wait to get going testing has been going well so he's uh, yeah all looking good Sam the last time we saw you racing obviously you were carrying a bit of an injury um, physically you've had time to heal up and are you you know back to 100% fitness ready to start the year yeah my hands it's good now it's a little bit sore the first test back just pushing a little bit on the handlebars something that you can't really train you know over the winter but no worries it's, it's all good now and uh, yeah hopefully we can uh, keep going with it it's, it's caused me absolutely no issues riding so he's uh, yeah, fully fully fit as they say and, and ready to rock and roll well let's take us back to this time last year and Sam whenever you had that injury and obviously we arrived in Qatar you tried to run on the Friday and then obviously ruled out of action over the weekend but at that stage that was after you know a few tough seasons obviously from Aprilia onwards there was a lot of a lot of tough moments for you and in Qatar it must have all really felt like it was coming to a head for you as well again yeah, in some ways. Um, honestly, since I joined this team, I've felt quite relaxed and, and just in a, in a good place. So 
Yeah, it's disappointing. Obviously, when you get injured, it's a, it's a hard moment, but you also have to understand that it, it happens in our in our sport. So you sort of just have that focus of getting back to, to full fitness. So I didn't feel too bad. I, I rode on the Friday. I was actually quite fast considering how injured I was and, and I didn't do any laps. Obviously, Qatar is a track that I love and, and enjoy anyway. Um, yeah, we couldn't race. And then obviously the, the lockdown hit. So gave me a bit of time to get the shoulder right. Sam, it seems that you found um, a really great ally in, in your crew chief, um, Gilles. Um, I think he seems like he's maybe a bit different to you. He's a very chilled out guy and very laid back, it seems, when you speak to him. Um, but it seems that that kind of works well with you two guys together. Um, do you feel that you kind of bounce off each other quite well? Is there a really good balance in the box working with him? Yeah, he's, he's very... Uh, I've really enjoyed for the first first test with him until now. It's, it's going good. He's... Uh, yeah, different to me, but that's that's a positive thing, you know. We we, we bounce off each other. He's very, um, yeah. When something is not going good or it's not quite the right direction, he doesn't panic. He doesn't he doesn't you know, say anything negative. You know, he just just tries to work it back into a good way. The same thing when things are going great, you, you don't get much from him as well. Um, I think it took three wins in a row to get you know a, a nice compliment off him last year, but I respect that and like it. You know, it's nice to work with someone that's just quite flat line and, and working working away. He's got so much experience. I love talking to him over dinner and talking about the, the everything he's done and seen and, and achieved and, and enjoyed in his life. It's it's, it's great for me, and uh, I really respect him. The the bike's always more or less workable every time I get on it, and that's something that I've missed in the past, and, and you know gives me great confidence. Yeah, and that relationship, Sam. Like we saw that obviously last year, even whenever you were just using your your R one track bike, you know you were working with Gil at the at Catalonia and a couple of other places you've done that again this year as well over the winter like all those things must all add up to really building that relationship yeah I think it's a package you know that's where the, the, the difference in the, the the team helps you know they give me a lot more support I've got you know, even doing the test on the R1 which is obviously not 100% like the Moto2 but it's just to get, get working with the guys you can still work on certain things certain parts of the track certain riding styles and also just to spend a bit of time together and get used to each other again after winter or even just improve on the the feelings we have so that that's where the team have done have done really well you know they, they make me feel welcome in any any moment make me feel like i've got support at, at all the all the times and that's that's great as a rider you know it gives you just that bit more ammunition a bit more feeling in your pocket that when you go to the race you know you're doing it all together sam i remember watching you uh, last year and thinking um on the bike that you looked quite a bit smoother than you had before in model two and um obviously you're using the the rear brake lever on your handlebar and you, you mentioned how that had basically um, helped you quite a bit. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about that? And also, have you continued to maybe refine your style over this preseason? Yeah, yeah. Jill's has also helped me with that. You know, smooth is fast and it's all smooth is fast in racing. But it's when you push hard, it's sometimes hard to be smooth, especially for me in uh, in my career. But when you when you um, narrow it down it's just working on them bits even from last year to this year and I'm still working on just being smoother smoother with not just the visually on the bike smoother movements but also with my brake release throttle control stuff that obviously is hard to see from the outside but just smoothing everything out and uh, puts a lot less stress on the tyres a lot less stress on the bike so it means that consistency you know you can you can keep it going a lot longer um, the rear brakes help me just because I can balance the bike a bit easier before I enter a lot of guys in Moto2, which is obviously majority, uh, have come from Moto3. So the, the riding style is a lot more wide lines and sweepy lines. 
And just as a result of the fact that there's a lot of them guys in Moto 2, the development sometimes goes a little bit in that direction. Since the Triumph's been in, you can ride the bike a lot of different ways. And my style is a lot more direct into the corner. I cut quite a lot into the corner compared to them. But that means at one point of the corner, I've got quite a lot of stress on the front because I've cut in which can be fast to cut in because you're braking with angle, which means you're loading the front more in effect. You've got more tyre in the track. But then in the middle of the corner, when I wasn't using the rear brake, that brake release was causing the bike to come up in the front and lose front feeling and grip and had a lot of small little crashes just at that point. So with the, what's the rear brake's helping me is at that point, so which is the second part of tipping in the apex, is just balancing the bike out a little bit before I let release the brake. So it's, it's not really, it's a little bit of stopping, but more just keeping the bike in balance and then eliminating them small mistakes or them small running wides. And then you just take the confidence and then you can build up on it and then yeah, then work on the smoothness. That's always something, Sam, that whenever you talk to riders that come through from the superbike side of things and move into the GP paddock, it's always one of the big things that's tough for them because a lot of the guys that have had to come through the superbike paddock are obviously you know a couple of years behind in terms of their development compared to a lot of the young riders that came through Moto3. Yeah, and also, the, and it's almost as if you catch up. Yeah, it's also the way to, to get the most out of a, a bike that's not as steep. You know, the Moto3, Moto2, Moto2, the bikes are real stiff. So apart from the movement in the tyres, the rider can move a lot, affects the bike. Even me riding the R1, I noticed that the way I move my body affects a lot less the bike. You know, sometimes I'm quite aggressive when I get back on the bike on the exit of a corner. With the Moto2, it causes the bike to move a lot. With the R1, it didn't really affect it. But it's just a different riding style. It's, it's not, it's just different way of riding. So then when you go from a, a production bike to the Grand Prix bikes, you do really have to smoothen it out. And it's something that I've continued to, to work on. Um, Sam, when you won in Le Mans, I think it was your first Grand Prix win in, in four years, more or less, which I guess is a long time for a racer, you know, to go without wins because it's, it's what you guys live for and stuff like that. Um, I imagine, you know, in that period, enormous self-belief was kind of needed to, to sort of bring you back to the race winning level, um, which is probably just something you take for a given. But can you talk about that process of, of building yourself up because you were um, basically just wanted to be competitive last year and then it was maybe a case of getting some decent results, scoring a few podiums and then when the race win opportunity came, you, you pounced on it. Yeah, of course, to go from where I was to tell everyone I was going to win, it's not, it's not realistic, you know. So it was just, like you say, a case of getting back, going fast, getting back, being, you know, in important positions and fighting at the front. Um, yeah, four years was too long, way too long. Um, I think it's just, it's difficult. As, a, as an athlete, as a rider, you obviously believe in yourself, you know, otherwise it's, it's difficult to even turn up. But there's some days and some moments. And, you know, even at the start of 2019, I went to the pre-season test and I was fastest and I started the year really fast not before the racing started let's say then as the season came the results weren't coming and so so there was lots of up and downs over them years even though there was no wins there was there was moments where you know you're fast again so you feel like it's possible um but yeah it's just i had to change quite a lot i changed a bit my mental approach and just just small details everywhere you know just like say smoothing it out the rear brake and just technical things as just polished everything up a bit and the speed's always been not too, so far away. It's just been the rest of it. So, yeah, hopefully we can carry that on for this year. But yeah, it was it was tough to come back. I think to win, to win a Grand Prix at any point in your career is difficult. But to win, have good years, then have a bit of a, you know, two, okay, the GP year, but also the two Moto2 two tough years. To come back, you definitely felt, you know, really sweet to get that to get that again. What about Sam, actually, at that stage? Obviously, at Le Mans, you'd had you know, good results up to that point in the year. If you think back to Hareth and... 
you know, the Mizano race coming from the back of the field, all those kind of results. You showed that there was all that progress being made. But you mentioned the mental side of things. And obviously, you've worked with a mental coach over the last couple of years. And that must have really made a big difference to help you understand like the, the chunks that you have to make, the bite-sized portions rather than it all has to work at once. Yeah, because the you know, if you in in theory, if you split it down, if I am I've even the other years I've been fast. So if you're as fast as a lot of the other guys, it means in the end you can get the results if you put it all together. So it was just keeping my mind a bit more clear, a bit more focused just on each session by session and you know, not really letting outside things distract me or you know, not trying to not thinking too much about the race in FP one, you know, just working on FP one, FP two, FP three building the weekend and then obviously if you do it like that by the time the race comes you're ready to go so I'd say it definitely helped me a lot with that also with my focus and the things I'm working on but also that's coincided with the team you know with Gilles working like that and Gilles not what, what helps is when the team analyse well everything you know when they analyse the sessions and analyse the riding and of course they can help me with the riding and the bike but also they don't you know, certain teams I've been in, if you're first in FP1, it's like you've won the World Championship. And then if you have a bad, bad FP2, you know, they have to change everything on the bike. And that that up and downness of the rider and the team is where then you're not ready for the race. And that's where it's helped me the last year. It's just been a lot more stable, a lot more working through the process. And then just, yeah, crack on. Um, Sam, I would like to talk about Portimao uh, last year. I think you said at the time that it was probably the best race you've ever done. Um, I remember on FP3, uh, towards the end of that session, the cameras cut down to you and you were speaking to some of your mechanics. And I think we overheard you saying that you didn't think you could continue the weekend. Um, you were feeling that much pain and that uncomfortable on the bike because of the injury. Um, yet we saw you you know, fighting for the race win, putting in a, a pretty heroic performance. Did you almost surprise yourself with what you kind of found within when you were trying to fight back that weekend? Yeah, for me, the 99% of all the races I've ever done, you know on the grid more or less how you can do, you know, because you've had the Friday, Saturday, Sunday, you know if you've qualified on the front row but you're not fast, then you know that you're, you're – you ain't got the pace for the race or if you qualify behind but you've got the pace you know you can go forward so you normally know more or less how you can get on of course there's a few positions either way but you know the ballpark where you can be and honestly in that race the first time I'm alive I had no idea I was, I was I've done I think four laps in a row before the race and I was in a lot of pain in the session because in the free practice session you, you have a choice if it's hurt and you can come in the garage you know it's not you don't have to stay on the track so it's it's, yeah, it's more difficult to keep going or come in it's sore and in the race I just had to crack on and go and I think with everything that was on the line the world championship the way I got not a bad start the way that the race sort of panned out for me I just sort of focused on Marini in front of me and just tried to just stay there as long as I could and yeah I'm really proud of that race because in the end we didn't get the result we wanted but it was a massive achievement to get on the podium with how my hand was and for the weekend I'd done to that point was I was nowhere near that pace. So yeah, definitely surprised myself. And uh, I can take a lot of confidence from that, from that weekend. And, and yeah, shame, obviously we didn't, we didn't get the result we wanted, but it was still a, a positive day. What about to go back to Haret and obviously Sam and the crash, like what did you learn from that instant? You mean when I did my shoulder, yeah, in testing or in my hand in Valencia, which one? I, Oh, sorry, in, in Valencia, sorry, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, when yeah, you, when you injured down, your hand. You know, um, the thing was, is that 
where I crashed in Valencia, it was a mistake on the gas. I missed a slight Mr. Gear and, and crashed. This can happen, but the, what I need to learn and what I've sat and spoke with Gilles and the team about is sector three in Valencia, I was fastest every session, which no, which is, I don't know, it was my riding style. My, I don't know. I was, that was a good, good sector for me. Where sector four, I was terrible. I was 17 for something. I was nowhere, nowhere near. So the, what I need to improve is rather than trying to be faster in sector three, where I'm already fast, is to then is to improve sector four, where obviously I've got a bit of margin to improve. So, yeah, I was sort of just pushing at the wrong point of the track. And yeah, the mistake was small, but I was already on the limit there. And then this is something I need to improve on. In a few of my crashes last year were pushing at points where I was already fast. And, and in matter two, if you're already fast in that point, it means the limit's quite close. So, yeah, it's just a shame. Yeah, it could have happened... Um, Anyhow, you know, I've seen other people crash. There also, my teammate crashed there in the test doing a similar thing a couple of weeks ago. So it is, it can happen with the Moto 2. You know, you never really pick the bike up out of there when you go from eight to nine. So you are on the side a bit. So it, it can happen. But yeah, it's just a case of pushing too much at the, in the wrong part of the track at the wrong time. You know, I was already fast in that session. It was only an FB3. And you can't say it like that because it's, it takes a full season. But it, you know, lost me the World Championship. So it's something I'll definitely learn from. Obviously, that's an area where when you talk to rider coaches, like I remember talking to Nico Canapa about it, and he was saying that a lot of the times riders will feel that they can improve in a sector because it feels bad. It feels like they're, you know, lacking a little bit of grip or something like that. But the reason it feels like that is because they're on the limit. And sometimes you need to be able to take that step back from it and, and look at it. But it's tough to do that in the moment. Yeah, I've seen they also in the past working with Alex, but also my team. Now, that's where they they're good because they can analyse where I need to improve and I need to then just go a bit deeper in that, you know, and, and just keep things the same where I'm fast and just improve. You know, it's, it's never a lot. It's in Moto2, it's two or three temps, but if you can find where you're lacking them and improve in that area, that's what I want to polish for this year and, and, and be more complete in the way that I, um, yeah, analyse that. But that's, yeah, these small things that we're working on was like last winter, for example, it was a case of, you know, can I be fast again? I'm just looking towards this year. I mean, we're not really seeing any technical changes in Moto2 um, from 2020 to 2021. Um, does that mean that we're going to see more of the same, more of the same of, of you being up front, maybe with Bezeki and one or two other guys there? I mean, how are you viewing this year ahead? Yeah, you should have told my team, you should have told my team there wasn't any technical changes before we've done four <laughs> days testing. Because I'll tell you what, I've tested a lot of stuff considering there's been no, no changes. Um no, it will be similar, but the, the, the bikes, there is, think Calix have done a great job and Owens have done a great job and there is new things coming through. So it's um, going to be similar because the base chassis is the same. Um, but what they, what you, they've basically, they've not made a new chassis, but everything that they've had the last couple of years, you can mix and match and, and also triple clamps and links and stuff like that. They've, they've, and swing arms have been new. So there is some new stuff. Uh, there's some good stuff for me. There's some things that I found in these testing that we've improved. So, um, but majority, yeah, like you say, the 70% of the bike will be the same. So I think as far as that goes, and, and the big thing, which I think was the tyres will be the same. So even last year, they were changing quite a lot of the tyres from the year before. So now we're going back to the same tracks with the same tyres and that's, that's going to be quite nice because we means that from FP1, you know more or less the race tyre and, and you can work on that. So, um I think Bezeki, obviously, yeah, will be strong. They're a great rider, great team, finished fourth in the championship, still had a chance at the championship into the last race last year. Um, Remy won the last race, 
So he's obviously full of confidence joining a great team, so he's going to be strong. But there's loads of guys. Also, the guy Navarro's coming off a bad year, but the year before he was strong and speed up, you know, also has good tracks. Canet has been at the test I've been at, has also been quite strong. My teammate's going to be strong. You know, he didn't have the best year last year, but he, he can do it. He's changed his crew a little bit around and he's looking good. So you could name a lot of people. Um, but yeah, it's going to be a case of just me focusing on myself, doing what I can do and sort of starting the year solid because I think every year the last you've got to look is three or four guys that keep the, the consistency over the year after that there's quite a big gap always in the championship at the end so it's about building that then points the first half of the year and, and when you can be fast and win you have to in Moto2 but it's the bad days that are going to make the difference in the championship Well just to change tact a little bit Sam because obviously in the last few years whenever you've been asked about it and, and getting back into a MotoGP team it was always kind of until you're back winning races, you can't really look at that as an option. Obviously, you know, you're 30 now and, and that brings you closer to, you know, that point where, you know, teams suddenly probably think you're a little bit too old. But halfway through last year, whenever you won the three in a row, you're back in title contention. Cal obviously retires. You know, there's a lot of emphasis then for getting a, a fast Brit onto a MotoGP bike. And obviously, you know, if you can get a good start this year, is that something that you're thinking of or is that something that you have to put in the back of your mind? I think as a, as a person and as a rider, you know, I've obviously had a, a go in at a GP uh, unsuccessfully, but the situation was very difficult. Also, since I've left that team, other people have gone in that side of the garage and also had very difficult. So I feel like I've got a little bit of unfinished business that I would like in my life and in my career to look back and, and get another chance because I feel like I could do a lot, lot better and, and do something good and, and have a go but obviously I need to earn my shot I need to deserve it coming off last year I think I've shown that I'm back and, and, and in a good way so if I can do similar to last year and, and, and improve in some areas then there's absolutely no reason why I don't deserve a shot I know I'm 30 but it's not like I'm 50 in the end if you're fast and you, you, you can be there then you deserve to be there so um, I'd love another go on a decent package and to see how I can get on but let's just yeah see what plays out the next the next few months is that something that's frustrating for a rider as well, Sam, whenever you look at the riders that you've raced against in Moto2, you know, you've been able to race against whether it's Zarco, Rabat, Rins, you know, the guys that have stepped up now for this year, Bastianini. Is it one of those things where you look at it and you say, yeah, if I'm given the right opportunity, you can have the kind of results that some of those guys have had? <laughs> I think that... Um you know, I don't want to be one of these guys that I'm a you know, retired 50 yard telling everybody how fast <laughs> I used to be and how I could have done this than that. I think that I think you make your own your own way, your own chance. Like the Aprilia situation, it was my choice to go there. I wasn't forced to do it. So I I'm I'm not gonna say that you look at people and say, if I had this, I had that. I just think if I can win races again and get another shot, then I can I can do better. But um they're all good riders. There was a lot of a lot of riders that have gone up there and, and done well and some that haven't so yeah I don't really look at look at it like that too much because um, yeah in the end it's a results driven sport and if you've, you're have you not getting them it's easy to say you know if I had that I, I could do this because in the end it's, it's just tall in the end you have to look at the results you're getting and, and what happens so I'd like another shot on a decent bike just to prove to, just to, to myself just to see if I could do it or not maybe not but um, it would be nice but the first goal is to be winning races and try and be world champion and that's also something I could look back in a good way at uh, Just one final thing from me Sam um, obviously a few weeks ago we had really sad news that uh, Fausto Grassini lost his battle with uh, COVID-19 um, obviously you spent I think three seasons in, in Fausto's teams in Moto2 and, and MotoGP 
I've heard you speak very highly of him, you know, as a person, and you always said he was a, a good guy. Maybe could you tell our listeners just your kind of experiences with Fausto and, and you know, what a, a big loss this is? Yeah, you know, in in in, uh, in life, you meet certain people that you have, you know, you, you just get on with well. And I've always got on with, with Fausto well, you know, it's... Um, there's one side of it which is racing and business and other side which is personal and and in racing in in sport you know there's there's a lot more that goes into it you know there's pressure from sponsors it's a, the need results and, and sometimes it don't work out you know it can get sometimes it's it's a difficult relationship but we we stayed friends also even last year two or three times last year we took flights together uh when you know obviously traveling was hard with the covid so we took private flights together to the races and we we, we really you know, do get on did get on well so um Somebody like Fausto has put so much into into racing and uh, ran such a, you know the team's big. He's Moto Two, Moto Three, Moto GP. He's, he's still running Moto GP, but it's different with Aprilia. But obviously, we're set to go back next year. Um, just just if there was more people like him in our in our sport in our paddock, it'd definitely be a better place. And uh, yeah, it's difficult. It's very difficult times for everyone at the minute, and it's um, yeah, it's hard to. I was talking to my to my fiance last night difficult to to really sink in about faster because um yeah it seems not real because we were close we were definitely um away from the track friendly and, and just somebody that's very passionate about racing it brought a new a lot of life into a room or into into the, the paddock and if there was more people like that it would definitely be a, a good place it'll, it'll be missed and i hope that they will carry on the grassini racing because you definitely live for live for racing and Hope that they carry it on and, and, and you know, you can do him proud. Yeah, definitely, Sam. And thanks for joining us this week on the Paddock Pass podcast. Neil, it was interesting to talk to Sam just to hear his thoughts ahead of this season because obviously when we get to at the end of the show, we're going to be given our predictions, but Sam's coming in as a title favourite. And it's been really interesting to see how his mentality has changed over the course of the last year. It's been really interesting to see that, Steve. Yep, it's also been really interesting to see how his riding style has changed. I think he talked about it uh, very interestingly just there in that clip that we heard um, how basically he is a bit calmer and he's able to use uh, the rear brake front um, lever on his handlebar to basically smooth out his riding style a bit made it make it a bit less critical on the front end um, and um, yeah I think you know he's, he's now in the, the kind of the the surroundings um, he's in a team that is super professional that is level-headed isn't kind of overcome by maybe spurts of emotion like some of the previous teams he's been in um and just has like a lot of level heads around him um which i think maybe you know sam sam needs sometimes so um he's definitely starting the year as a favorite he did some things at the end of last year which were pretty remarkable chiefly that performance in portimao um and yeah i would say you know along with marco bezecchi he's got to be he's got to be the favorite yeah, and Adam, one of the questions that we asked Sam was about having to understand where he made mistakes last year. And obviously we were talking in terms of Valencia and the crash that left him with the broken wrist. And he said that you know, he needed to be able to take a step back and understand that he was actually really fast in that section. And that you know he made a mistake because he's tried to push even further, go even harder in a section where he was already on the limit. And that's something that we never really heard too much from Sam in the past. And now it looks like he's actually ready to really put all those things together. That's right, Steve. I think, um, you know, when it comes to the Moto2 class, uh, not only do you have this uh, supposed uh, stepping stone technologically to, to go to MotoGP, we you know with the, the engine package and the electronics, uh, of course, all set and controlled um, just as much by Dorna. Uh, 
you know, as, as the, the motorcycles themselves. But uh, what's interesting for me is that a huge variation you get in Moto2 between riders that excel and, and, and can really find the lap times to, to be in contention and those who just fall off the edge of a cliff, it would seem. I mean, uh, Sam, in the last couple of years, he's been there, has found that level of competitiveness. I mean, like Neil said, uh, Mark VDS, I think he's in one of the best teams in the category. So he's, he's in the perfect place to achieve. But, you know, you just have to look at other riders, such as his teammate, Augusto Fernandez, you know, uh, in 2019 was at the point of, of, of really seriously challenging for regular Grand Prix wins and then struggled in 2020. Uh, a rider like Jorge Navarro is somebody we saw again in a similar position in 2019. But then again in 2020 had his own struggles. Lorendo Baldassare, Thomas Luti. I mean, you can reel off the names of guys who are veering from you know, uh, accomplishment to those who are slightly lost. So I, it must be you know, uh, we'll talk about how difficult the, the Moto3 class is to, to crack, but Moto2, I think, is, is um, it really is like a pit of lions, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it, it gets more difficult as you go up. Uh, that's the way it should be to an extent. But um, Moto3, you can get an awful long way just on talent alone, uh, but you need to learn a little bit about uh, the, you know, working in a team bike setup to understand how, where you can get more out of the bike. Moto2, that really steps it up a bit. Um, you really have to start to work on your bike setup. You have to understand much more about racecraft, about all the rest of it, about how to get more out of the bike. Um, and some riders manage that better than others. And if they're in the right situation, that works really well. And if they move into a different situation, then it can work really, really badly. Um, and the ones who succeed and go into MotoGP, I think, are the ones who can put more and more of the package together. Motorcycle racing as a whole is a package, is a package of uh, talent, ambition, um, uh, ability, intelligence, racecraft, setup, all the rest of it. And the, 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 the elements in that package change as you go through the classes and you can sort of see the, the one, the riders who are stronger or we and weaker in, in various the sort of parts of that package. Uh, and the ones who, who are the best overall are the ones who get uh, all the way through to the top. Yeah, and just to add what you said there, Dave, um, you know, Steve, you, earlier in the show, you asked me what the riders have to adapt to in Model 2. When they're coming from Model 3, you can basically, if you've got a, a good setup and you're fast at a particular track, you can kind of pace around for half of the race and just make sure that you're sticking in there with the lead group. Model 2, you have to be absolutely on it from the first corner of the first lap. And basically, we've seen so many Model 2 races over the last five, six, seven years be decided in the first three laps. If you lose or if you have a bad qualifying or if you get knocked about a bit in the first lap, it's very, very difficult to recover two or three seconds that you might lose at the start of the race. So that is absolutely paramount. And, you know, that's why I think it is it is fantastic preparation for MotoGP because the same uh, can be said of that class. I think just before we veer, veer too much off topic uh, regarding Sam, um, I mean, there's two interesting questions around this particular rider and team combination. One is whether, of course, he can get the job done in 2021 and be world champion. The other one is, you know, can he make a return to MotoGP? Uh, you know, that particular class. He was on a hiding to nothing, I think, going on the Aprilia. And while he admitted at the time that it was, you know, uh, he fulfilled a lifetime dream by racing in the premier class, um, you know, there seems to be more ambition, what I say about him now. Um, of, of course, there's no British rider in MotoGP this year. Uh, you know, his nationality could count in his favor, um, especially if he is world champion in, in Moto2 in, in this year. So uh, I, I do wonder if there's space again for Sam Lowe's to have another attempt at it. I think for me, uh, there's definitely going to be an opportunity for him if he can win the championship because we need to have Brits on the grid. 
And if you were to go up and down the Grand Prix paddock and look at the Brits that are in the in the paddock, I think Sam's going to be the one that's best placed for it. Jake Dixon would have to come in and do a better job than Sam to warrant being put onto the bike. Now, obviously enough, Jake Dixon has a natural progression as well, being in the Petronas team. So, you know, there is a little bit of an advantage for him there if he can go in and do a great job. But I think if you were to pick the rider that could win the championship, you're looking at Sam and that could give him a chance to get back into GP. And I think it's been interesting to talk to him about that time he had in MotoGP over the last, say the last year, since he got back to winning races, since he got back to being a front runner. And he doesn't view it anymore that he had the chance in MotoGP. He always talks about, you know, it, it was there was too many things wrong for him to be able to show what he could do. Whereas at the time, you're trying to convince yourself, no, this is my shot. I need to make the most of it. I think now he's got a, a much better sense of perspective on it. I think, I mean, well, first of all, why do there need to be Brits in MotoGP? Obviously, because BT Sport pay a lot of money to to screen the uh, screen the rights. So they want a British rider. Um, I think that uh, Jake Dixon has the progression from Moto2 to, Moto, to, to MotoGP in the Patronus team, uh, but also he's younger. He has, uh, you know, he, he's still to make the, the the step up. I think uh, a lot of MotoGP team managers would be wary of Sam Lowe's precisely because he, uh, you know, he, he failed in, uh, in MotoGP through no fault of his own, uh, but no one's going to look at that. You know, Aleish was doing, uh, uh, he was teammates to Aleish Spargo. Aleish Spargo was doing well. Um, uh, Sam Lowe's was completely unwanted by uh, Aprilia. He was Grassini's choice, um, uh, but Aprilia, you know, basically ignored him and gave him um, uh, just concentrated all their efforts on uh, Alicia Spargo. And I think that I think Sam really, really suffered as a re- as a result of that. Um, but unfortunately, that can that shows you how precarious the life of a of, of a motorcycle racer is. You can get opportunities, but when you get the wrong opportunity, it can be actually much, much worse for you than uh, getting the, the turning sort of the wrong opportunity down. Sometimes it's better to stay. Personally, I would like to see uh, Sam Lowe stay in Moto Two because I think he can be, um, you know, the 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 champion, the multiple champion in in one class, and again, the gatekeeper. So if Sam Lowe's wins the championship, comes back as champion. Um, uh, as defending champion, he becomes the man to beat for anyone wanting to go through to MotoGP. You know, you don't get to go to MotoGP if you can't beat Sam Lowe's. Um, I, I think there is honour in that, and I think there's honour in that also in if you can become a multiple, if you could be, you know, win multiple championships, then that would, you know, that that would be just an incredible achieve, uh, achievement uh, in, in itself. Long, you know, we're a long way from Sam Lowe's winning multiple championships, but you would have to say it's not impossible. It's certainly, it's certainly not improbable. It's something that he could do, uh, given given the right circumstances. Neil, what about you? What way do you see it falling in the class? What way do you see it where the likes of particularly Lowe's and also Jake Dixon? Because for for our audience, there's a lot of British fans that whenever we post on Twitter about you know what everyone thinks about the Moto2 class, a lot of people came back and said that they were most excited about the two British riders. So obviously for our listeners, it's something interesting to see where they sort of fall. Yeah, yeah. I think it's um, it's definitely interesting. I think, you know, Dorna will, um, will definitely... Um, have it in their interest to get a Brit back or an American in, in MotoGP basically as soon as that's possible. We know that Joe Roberts was, you know, there was a MotoGP ride available for him at the end of last year, um, you know, despite him not maybe winning the race in the class. Um, but yeah, I think um, if, if if either Jake or Sam, you know, if Sam is on the way to, to win the championship, there could be some kind of 
some kind of space for him there. Um, if that doesn't happen and if, you know, Jake Dixon has a really, really strong season where he's scoring podiums from the first part of the year, then, you know, perhaps we'll see him up there um, at some point soon. Um, but yeah, you would you would say that, um, you know, it is, it is definitely Dorna's priority. You know, BT Sport are... Um, you know, big pairs. We know that for all the TV deals, the same could be said with uh, Sky Italia, with uh, the Zone in in um, Spain. So yeah, um, I think Dorn is pretty aware of this, and they'll be, I think, looking at Moto Two more than any other category um, for where the the next Moto GP Brit will come from. That's why I think Moto Two has extra extra relevance there, because I mean Neil hinted at it. I mean, you've got two really two Americans with a hell of a lot of potential. Um, you know, Bobby A and Roberts. I mean, it'd be fascinating to see what they can do and whether anybody else is watching closely enough to, to profit and, and put like a, you know, uh, like you could say an alternative nationality in the premier class. You've got another Australian coming up in Remy Gardner. And then, you know, even look at, uh, you know, we're missing a German in the premier class. I mean, Marcel Schrotter, is he actually going to achieve a level performance to, to make, you know, some satellite teams in MotoGP take notice? So, um, you know, it, there, there are... Obviously, we have limited technical diversity in Moto Two, but in terms of the actual riders themselves, there's a fantastic mix. Yeah, and when we come back after the break, we'll look at the established riders in the class, and then that incredible crop of rookies that are coming through in the Moto Two World Championship. Fly Racing believes that our most important obligation is to provide the highest performing products to riders worldwide. Offering both on- and off-road products for every price range, Fly Racing is committed to reshaping expectations. Fly Racing revolutionized the off-road world with the Formula Helmet, featuring Rion technology. Visit flyracing.com and at flyracingusa on Instagram to learn more about the innovation that can keep you protected in 2021. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast. We're looking at the Moto2 World Championship on today's show. And uh, David, we've got a real... We've got a fantastic crop of rookies coming up through from the Moto3 class. Cameron Bobia, of course, a rookie coming in from the Superbike classes over in America. But when you look at some of the names that we have stepping up from last year, you know, your Fernandez, Tony Arbelino stepping up, Albert Arenas, the world champion. Like, this is a cracking class of rookies. It's actually going to be really competitive just to see who's the top rookie this year. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a very interesting group of riders. Um, as we say, I think Ayogura is also coming up, that, which is, I'm very interested to see what he can do. Celestini of Yeti, there's, there's a bunch of riders who you really, um, well, you know, if they can find their feet, they can be very, very competitive. Just looking at a sort of like the early, early times uh, so far, it looks like Tony Arbolino is, is adapting quite well. Alberto Reynas not uh, not doing too badly either. Um, yeah, it, it's a it really was the cream of the of the Moto Three crop who who moved up from uh, to Moto Two this year, and, and yeah. Like I say, it, it, they are uh, exciting prospects. There's nobody who has come up that you think he shouldn't be there. Yeah, and Neil, obviously enough, whenever you get these riders stepping up from Moto3, we're going to have a Moto3 season preview tomorrow and it leaves a void to fill, but it's exciting to see that step up. And like even for even for a man like David, an understated man like David, he was clearly getting excited there. It must be, it must be a time when you really are excited to get ready for the start of the Moto2 Championship. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You're seeing uh, testing times where... 
um, looking at some testing times from Qatar and, you know, looking at some of the rookies. I mean, Ralph Fernandez has taken, you know, next to no time getting up to speed on the Moto2 machine, which is a bit of a surprise just how quickly he seems to have adapted to it. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, it's, it's really interesting. And I think it's kind of similar to, to MotoGP. Um, we're going into the season with such limited amount of preseason testing that we, we're not really too sure, you know, who's coming in as the real form man, you know, because the Qatar test has never always been a real true barometer of uh, how the race is going to pan out. Um, I seem to remember a couple of years ago, um, I think 2019, um, the, the Qatar test basically was, I think, Sam Lowe's miles ahead of the rest. But when it came to the race, uh, you know, it didn't quite pan out that way. Um so, yeah, I think it's going to be really interesting. I think there's going to be a few surprises just because we haven't really had the usual, you know, official tests in Hareth and then official tests. Well, we obviously have the official test in Qatar, but it's basically only just that. So very limited sort of sample size uh, from which we can make our predictions. And uh, Neil, just whenever we look at the rookies that come through, Cameron Bobier is obviously one of them and uh, Bobier has been a name that everyone's been excited to see make a transition to the World Championship. I have to say, I didn't think in a million years his transition to a World Championship was going to come in the Moto2 class. I was sure it was going to be on a superbike and something that was somewhat familiar to him. But instead, he's just jumped straight into the middle of the shark tank and in all likelihood, straight into the middle of the field as well because it's going to be a really tough transitional period for him. But this is a guy that's used to winning races, used to being out in front. He's now going to have to get the elbows out and that's going to be a big challenge. Mm, it is going to be a big challenge, yeah. I mean, uh, I wasn't, I have to admit, I wasn't the, the closest follower of the Moto America series last year. But from just reading reports and, and, and kind of checking on, on results occasionally, it was clear that Bobier was just walking that championship last year without really any glitches. It, it seemed pretty straightforward for him. And going from that into Moto2, I mean, you couldn't really be asking for a bigger difference in, in what he's going to have to deal with. Um, I think it's a brave decision. Um, it shows that he is ready to, you know, roll up his sleeves and leave a fairly comfortable position in America um, where he was clearly the best rider and guaranteed to win a great deal to go in somewhere where, you know, he's not even guaranteed a top 10 finish in Qatar uh, this weekend, it has to be said. Um, and, you know, John Hopkins of the American racing team has said that, um, you know, Bobier will be taking something of a pay cut this year. So I think it's brave. And, um, yeah, I think he's he's definitely one of the guys we have to keep an eye on because I don't think there's been an American moving to the World Championship um, with as much talent and as much expectation on his shoulders as Bobier has probably since Ben Spees back in 2009 uh, when he moved to the World Superbike Championship and uh, that didn't necessarily go too badly for him. Yeah, I think there is a very, very big difference between uh, the MotoGP Championship and the Moto2 Championship. I mean, we saw Jake... Uh, um, um, sorry. Um, we saw Josh Herring come in and really struggle quite uh, quite a lot in Moto2 because the, 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 the Moto2 Championship, the, the field is so much closer and it becomes very difficult to actually come in um, and... Uh, do um when you're used to always being the fastest guy on the grid and then coming in and being sort of a few tenths off but then still being like 13th or 14th uh, i think that can be very very difficult to deal with just mentally um i think it can be much more difficult to actually you know try and find those extra hundredths and tenths which make a, which can make the difference between a few a few positions on the grid 
Uh, starting position, I think, is much, much more important on um, in in Moto Two than in Moto America. Also, just because the the, the level of competition is is that much that much higher. Um, I think it's really it it's a much tougher class. Just mentally, uh, I, from talking to Moto Two riders, the one thing that they say is the the the, the stress of uh, having to battle your way forward. Um, uh, of of just the smallest mistake co- being capable of costing you an enormous amount of time and an o- enormous amount of places. Uh, that's what they find most difficult, and that, that I think is is the biggest ch- the challenge for for Cameron Bobier. And David, obviously, it's not just Cameron Bobier that's an American in the class. We've also got Joe Roberts. Joe, of course, had a really stellar time at the start of last season. Think back to Qatar. He was right at the front of the field, qualified on pole position. He had some real highlights last year, but he switched teams to Taltrans. And, uh, you know, it's going to be an interesting season to see how he does because he leaves one team where it was all very much centred on him to now joining a different team and uh, a very different culture. Yeah, exactly. I mean, making that switch and that adaptation is going to be a big thing. Um, it was uh, difficult. I spoke to him a couple of weeks ago. Um, what he said was interesting. He said the thing about the uh, 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 America Racing Team was that they had switched chassis, and because they'd switched chassis, uh, they were missing out on uh, sort of certain experience. Um, they would turn up at a track, and if the bike was good, they'd be quick. But if the bike was not sort of, if they didn't find that setup straight away, they would be chasing their tails a lot, and it it took them a long time to actually get sort of find the the sweet spot. What he was hoping for with the new team was that they've, uh, you know, they haven't switched chassis. They've been with Calix for a long time. They're a very experienced, very good team, very strong team. Uh, and so they hoped that he, he said he hoped that, you know, when they turn up at every track, they should have a better idea of what they need at every single track. Um, and they should be able to find a setup faster and not struggle so much with it. Neil, just uh, about that as well, because obviously last year we saw Joe Roberts really strong at low grip circuits. We saw in Qatar, we saw in Bruno, he was he was super. But David's talking there about in terms of the setups and trying to find that that better balance. Is that something that comes from the rider, do you think, or was the American racing team they were they just had whatever base setting they had that was very much dependent on the grip levels of the track? It could have been that. I also think that the the, the tracks that you mentioned were also fast and kind of flowing tracks in nature as well and, and Joe seems to really like that sort of uh, style of track because we saw him pretty quick at Portimao. We saw him pretty quick in Barcelona as well. Um, yeah, and I mean, it's um, so I think it's just a bit of a mix really um, between, you know, his riding style, the team, um, and also other factors. The fact that, you know, where he was quick last year generally was um, pretty, um, yeah, pretty fast and flowing circuits. But then we also saw him quick at Le Mans. He got pole position there. Uh, we saw him quick at Valencia. He crashed out of the lead there. So, you know, Joe, I think towards the end of the season was becoming a, a fairly rounded performer, all, all in all. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how he continues to adapt this year. Obviously, third different team in three years. So we'll see how that goes for him. But uh, Neil, you also sat down with uh, Steve Sargent, the chief product officer from Triumph, just before the start of the season to be able to get his thoughts on uh, the Moto2 class, what it means for Triumph. So we're going to get the chance now to hear from Steve just with his thoughts on the championship. 
Well, I'm delighted to welcome back Steve Sargent, the Chief Product Officer of Triumph Motorcycles to the Paddock Pass podcast. Uh, Steve, you were a guest on the show before. Um, thanks for coming back and uh, taking the time to speak to us again. Uh, how is everything at your end? Yeah, it's all good, Neil. Um, you know, it is a busy time of the year for us with product launches and things and with COVID restrictions, that's all incredibly complicated and difficult. So a lot of things have had to be uh, juggled around, but uh, we're making our way through it. So it's all good. I can imagine. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the uh, the Grand Prix season is, I think, a fortnight away, maybe even less than that. Um, I guess from your point of view, the hard work has already been done. You've already made the engines and sent them off to Extern Pro to, to be looked after and things like that. You can maybe just take a a backseat and watch what happens now from Qatar with uh, with interest. Yeah, I mean, the engines actually arrived in Spain probably three quarters of the way through last year. We work quite a long way ahead with um, Extern Pro and with Trevor to make sure that his guys have got plenty of time to build the engines and dyno them. And they have to organize them into the different batches that are going to different parts of the world. It's quite logistically, it's quite a complicated operation. Yeah, yeah. And has that been complicated um, further by COVID-19 or is it just a standard procedure as before? It's not been a massive difference from our side. Um, putting the kits together and shipping them across to Spain has all been fairly straightforward. I think uh, Trevor and the Extern Pro boys have had a few more complications, particularly with the fact that Trevor splits his time between the UK and Spain. So for him to move backwards and forwards has been particularly difficult, I think. Now, I think the last time you were on the show, you uh, you might have touched on this, but uh, a bit of a general question, Steve. Um, I mean, Triumph being back in Model 2, I think everyone has enjoyed that. Us as an audience have enjoyed seeing it. We've enjoyed listening to the, the engines as well. I think the riders have enjoyed it too. Um, but I guess it must be it must be something that, that you guys over at Triumph HQ are enjoying. Um, and can you talk to us a little bit about some of the, the benefits that you've seen of of your return uh, to Grand Prix racing and uh, supplying the engines for the Model 2 class? Yeah, I think internally it's been amazing for everybody involved in Triumph to see us back in uh, a top level of racing. And the excitement generally within the company has been you know, massive. There's so many of us are tuned in every weekend, watching the practice sessions, the, you know, the race sessions qualifying. So from there, in terms of internal motivation, I think it's been tremendous. But obviously, the uh, key benefit for us going racing is to get our name out there and to get recognized um, for uh, performance engines for a start. So having people uh, have an opportunity to see Triumphs racing around you, with some of the best racers in the world, pushing these things to the absolute limits is a real demonstration for us of what we are capable of as a company and the kind of performance that we can get out of a, a, a 765 triple engine. Obviously, people are aware that this is an engine that derives from one of our road bikes. So in terms of delivering that credibility back into a bike that people can go out and buy from a showroom and put on the road, it has been tremendously important for us. And then just in terms of getting the Triumph name out there, it's been Fantastic, not just seeing the Powered by Triumph on all the bikes going around, but also at certain circuits, seeing the Triumph advertising in the background. I think in the first season, uh, Valentino did us a huge favor by falling off at Assen right in front of one of the big Triumph banners. So we, we got we got lots of photo opportunities out of that. Um, but, you know, all, all of that is is a great benefit for us in terms of getting ourselves out in front of a wider audience. 
Absolutely, yeah. And some interesting news this year. Um, it's not just going to be Moto2 that you're participating in in terms of um, racing. You see that you're making a bit of a return to the British Championship with British Supersport with the uh, the Triumph Street Triple there. I think with full factory backing, right? That's that's a, that's an official kind of entry with um, with PTR. Yeah, it's an official factory team. We're working with PTR Racing in British Supersport. It's a, it's a project we've been discussing really uh, with Dorna, but also with some of the national championships for a couple of years. Obviously, in supersport racing, a number of the manufacturers have started to drop out of manufacturing uh, middleweight supersport bikes. And it was getting to the point where there were a limited number of uh, makes on the grid. And everybody's been looking at a way of how do we um, expand that and get more manufacturers involved and it's obviously an important class because it's an important feeder class for people who want to go on and do superbikes or Moto2 or MotoGP. Uh, so we've agreed with British Superbike this year that we'll run a team in British Superbike uh, with PTR Racing. Uh, the objective of that really is to develop the regulations so that it can then be expanded out into World Supersport and, and hopefully a number of other national championships. Okay, interesting stuff. Yeah. Um, switching back to Moto 2, Steve, um, I mean, it's obviously looking like and it's shaping up to be a pretty, pretty good championship. But we have two British runners in Moto 2 this year, like we did last year. It's hard to look, it's hard to think that those guys aren't going to be up there challenging for maybe race wins, maybe in Sam Lowe's case, the championship. I mean, it would be great to see a British rider take triumph to Moto 2 title. Yeah, it was kind of it's kind of a dream, isn't it, to see a British rider win a championship on a Triumph would abs be absolutely amazing. Sam obviously is probably in the best position to be able to do that. Uh, Jake, I think, is definitely up there for some podiums and hopefully some some race wins. But Sam, you would certainly hope he can string a full season together. He's certainly got the speed. Uh, he's got the capability. I think mentally he's in a much better place than he's ever been in. So you know, let's uh, let's keep our fingers crossed. Absolutely. Um, and just finally, Steve, um, I mean, we saw some fantastic racing in Moto2 in 2019, but I think 2020 surpassed maybe everyone's expectations for the class with the championship fight that went right the way to the wire. Um, limited changes, I think, technical changes for the teams and the chassis manufacturers this year. I mean, we're probably going to see something quite similar to what we witnessed in 2020, right? Yeah, I think everybody in all three classes is in a very similar situation at the moment in that because of the COVID situation um, and the fact that the, the main objective is to actually get out there and go racing. So there's not been a lot of technical development, I don't think, on um, many of the classes in, in the last couple of years. And that's primarily a focus on, on keeping the costs down as much as possible. But there, are, there will be a few technical changes through the year. Uh, Morelli are constantly working on the electronics package with the teams. And we saw last year uh, quite a bit of development through the year, uh, particularly on uh, the shift and the engine braking and the engine blip. And we would expect that Morelli would continue to work on that stuff. I guess one of the biggest changes last year was Dunlop bringing a new tire. And... Uh, in addition to that, obviously, they brought a softer compound to, I think, three of the rounds last year, which uh, generated quite a lot of excitement during qualifying in terms of seeing people suddenly go quite a bit quicker than they'd been able to do before. And then 
having to make a decision in the race as to is that tyre something that's going to last. So I think that that could bring a, a level of excitement. I would think Dunlop will be considering bringing that tyre to more rounds next year. So that, I think that'll bring a, a, a new dimension as well. Okay, yeah. Well, I'm sure we've got another fantastic season of Model 2 action ahead of us. Uh, Steve Sargent, thanks again for joining us on the pod. Okay, cheers, Neil. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Fly Racing. And uh, David, obviously for Triumph, the Moto2 class, it has been a big success for them. We've obviously seen the 765 triple being really well received by everyone, whether it was riders, whether it was teams, whether it was fans. The racing's been good. The bikes sound good. It's been a good step forward for a class that had sort of stagnated just by having that same Honda engine for so long. Yeah, the the biggest difference is the electronics. And uh, I spoke to Corrado Cecchinelli um, um, oh, uh, a couple of years ago, I think, um, about the, the switch. And they said that one of the things they wanted to do with the switch to Triumph was also to train the uh, crew chiefs, mechanics, data engineers, that sort of thing, about the difference in the class, uh, about how to set up uh, the bike, because that was the one thing which they felt... Um, uh, had been missing, especially with the with the Honda engines. The Honda electronics package was very, very simple, very basic. There wasn't much you could do about it. Um, the Magneti Morelli pa- uh, electronics package on the uh, Moto2 bikes uh, is a bit more sophisticated. They're also slowly bringing in little bits of more um, sort of control uh, for it uh, over the over the bike. It'll never be as sophisticated as the MotoGP package, but the idea is to train riders to... Th- be thinking about uh, electronics and how electronics can change the bike and also about um, uh, engineers and uh, chief mechanics and data uh, and data people about how it can change the bike uh, about the you know how to improve the bike about understanding data better about uh, uh, about working with setup better. so it, it's just generally aimed at, at improving quality Overall, and you know, there there has been, I think, clearly a step forward in in, in quality, also of, uh, of of crew chiefs and engineers, but certainly in racing as well. The racing has got a little bit closer. It's become less pro- uh, processional. Um, it's made uh, it, it's made a bigger difference. The bikes themselves are a bit talkier. They've got a little bit of an, a, a different uh, a power delivery than the, the than the Honda engine, which is a little bit closer to a MotoGP bike, although they're still you know 150 horsepower or whatever down on uh, on a MotoGP bike. So yeah, it, it's um it's become uh, more of an intermediate class in the way that the old 250 class was an intermediate class. It was the step up between the small bikes and the big bikes, the old five the old 500s, the, the Moto Three is definitely much more much closer to MotoGP and the step between Moto3 and Moto2 is now bigger and smaller between Moto2 and MotoGP and that was very much the point. Yeah, and I think that's a very good thing as well because I remember a couple of years ago it was actually for Joan Mir's first test on a Moto2 bike. I was standing trackside and I was chatting to Alex Lowe's who was trackside as well at the same time. He was obviously keeping an eye on Sam but checking out what everyone else is doing as well and he was saying that one of the key things that you see in the Moto 2 class is who can adapt to riding the bigger bikes quickest and instantly after only a few laps Alex was already talking about what Juan Mir was doing on the bike to really help that adaptation he wasn't jumping out of the bubble he wasn't immediately putting his arms dead straight he was trying to be much more progressive than he had been on a Moto 3 bike and it really did seem that it you know, it didn't unsettle the bike as much. It helped him to get up to speed quickly on a Moto2 bike, whereas some of the other guys that were coming up from Moto3 at that stage were still trying to slam the bike around, really force it. 
and it took them a lot longer to adapt. And that's where it's going to be interesting to see what happens with these rookies as they continue to adapt. Because like you said, David, the step now between a Moto3 bike and a Moto2 bike is so much bigger than it was five years ago. Five years ago, it was a big step. Now it's a much bigger step and it brings you much closer to the performance of a MotoGP bike. It means, Neil, that we're really able to see those potential superstar riders. And that's where I think it gets really interesting whenever you look at the established riders that we have in the class. You know, we've obviously talked to Sam at the start of the show. We expect him to be able to win races, challenge for the championship. But when you look at Bezeki, Remy Gardner, you know, you look at Aaron Cannett, Digi is in the class as well. You even look at someone like Lorenzo Baldessari that's been able to win a lot of races. He's on the MV this year, so I think it's going to be a surprise to see him at the forefront on a regular basis. But the depth of that kind of quality of rider really is apparent in the class. It is, yeah. Yeah, I think that's been one of Moto two strengths the last couple of years, to be honest. It's been, um, you know, there have been on their day probably 12, 13, 14 riders capable of, um, of scoring podium finishes. Um, in the class um, I still think the championship will co- probably come down to three maybe four names this year um, you pretty much mentioned them there Steve I think it'll be between Bezeki, Lowe's Gardner maybe Digia um, but um, you know there's three guys on speed ups that could surprise us there are the guys um, at the uh, Dynavolt team uh, Schroeder Arbolino um, you know Tom Lutti is a, a great Moto2 rider um, you know, there's a whole host of names that I think a couple of obviously fast rookies, Joe Roberts as well. Um, so, yeah, we're looking at, uh, I think, a really exciting season. Yeah, uh, It's also interesting to see, because you're seeing in Moto2, what we're also seeing in MotoGP. If you look at the MotoGP field, it's never been this close. It's never been this tight and it's never been this talented. Uh, the difference is just, just in terms of pure talent has never been so small. You're seeing the same in Moto2. The field is getting closer. There are now, you know, like 10, 12, 13, 14, 15 riders who, uh, you know, can fight for the podium. Well, maybe they won't all get on the podium, but they're certainly sort of capable of, uh, of podium. There may only be like, and there are four or five riders who can win a championship, um, which is uh, pretty good going. And in uh, Moto3 is perhaps the most open of the championships, but uh, you know that, that's what you get when you have lots and lots of young talent um, uh, coming in. You don't know what you've got until, until the season starts. So I think uh, it's just generally the, the level, the professionalism of uh, all of the riders in all of the classes has, increasing, has increased. This is the same in all professional sports. You know, th- that's just the way it is. You have to work harder and harder and harder. Uh, to uh, to to get anywhere in any kind of sport, but you're, we're, uh, I think MotoGP is definitely reaping the benefit of that. Let's get two of them, boys. Just before we finish up on this Moto Two season preview, Neil, I'm going to put you on the spot. Who's your world champion, and who's going to be the biggest surprise this year? Oh, I think it's uh, it's nip and tuck between Marco Bezzecchi and Sam Lowe's. Um, Ad went for Lowe's, so I'm going to go with Bezeki. I think, uh, you know, last year was his first year in a Calic chassis. Um, he made such a big jump from where he was the season before that when he really struggled on KTM machinery. Um, he had the chance to possibly move up to MotoGP last year at the very end with Aprilia, but uh, I think Sky Race and VR46 team blocked that. Didn't make that possible. So now he has a real chance to, to win a first world championship. So, yeah, I think we're going to go with uh, Marco Bezeki. And Dave, what about you? Oh, sorry, actually, Neil, who's your big surprise? Nearly got away with that one, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, I thought I'd wrestle my way out of that, Steve. Um, yeah, I think um, I might just be basing this uh, on 
what we've seen in preseason so far. But um, it does look like Raul Fernandez is going to be a real one to watch in Aki Ayo's team alongside Remy Gardner. Um, he's a super fast kid. Um, and I think he found something towards the end of last year riding a Moto3, which it was like a kind of a light bulb moment where it all seemed to click and he was able to um, basically take his his speed that he had shown all year in free practice and, and put it into practice in the race. And he's a tall lad now. He's, he's you know, he is quite um, quite a lanky chap. Um, I think that's more suited to a Moto2 machine and, you know, early indications suggest that um, he might be in running for Rookie of the Year. So, yeah, I think Raul Fernandez could be one to watch this year. Yeah, I'm actually going to go straight in with my surprise, Neil, and I'm going to say Fernandez is going to be great. I think he's going to have front row starts. I think he could even qualify in the front two rows in Qatar, which I think would be really impressive to jump in. The se- the preseason's been a bit strange for the Moto2 riders, but he looks like a rider that's really adapted well. I think he's going to be really exciting to watch all the way through this season. I'm quite keen to see what happens with Cameron Bobier as well. Obviously, coming from the Superbike side, we always wanted to see Cam get his chance to race in World SBK, but to see him in the world, in a World Championship, is really exciting. And I know from our friends over on Greg's Garage podcast over in the US, uh, Greg White and Jason Pridmore, that do the Moto America coverage and uh, their podcast looks at a bit of everything as well. When you talk to those guys about Bobier, and they know Bobier better than anyone else, you know, both of them really rave about him but it's going to be interesting to see how he adapts to being a small fish in a big pond rather than a big fish in a small pond. So that's going to be interesting for me. In terms of the world champion, I'm going to go with Sam Lowe's. I think Sam can put it all together now. I think he's got really good sense of perspective when you talk to him about what he has to do. He's not taking it that he has to be fastest every session, that he has to win every race. He's taking it that it's a 19-race season. This season's going to be an awful lot more normal than what we had last year. So he feels that it could be a, a much more suitable season for him. He fits really well in with the team. That's been the biggest difference. So I'm going to go with Lowe's as my world champion and Fernandez as my big surprise package. David, what about you? I mean, like Sam Lowe's is obviously the rider who ha- who um, anyone who wants to be cha- who wants to be champion will have to beat Sam Lowe's, um, which to me says that Sam Lowe's. I mean. Do I think he's going to be champion? I think he's going to be favour for the champion, but I don't think it's going to be easy in any way, shape or form. Um, I think uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing what Remy Gardner can do in a in a good team. I think that's uh, absolutely fascinating. Um, uh, I'm quite impressed by Aaron Kinnett as well. I think Aaron Kinnett could be uh, a, a real shocker. So um, I think I'd, just for the sake of argument, I'm going to go for Aaron Kinnett because I think he's going to be really, really strong this year. Yeah, Adam will love that actually. Just he's a big fan. As <laughs> he's we heard a big Canets fan. Yeah, of, uh, exactly. he loves Canets tattoos. Anyway, he'd love to see them up on the podium. But who's going to be your big surprise, Dave? Um, or would Canet surprise people by being the world champion? Are you, are you doing a two for one here, Dave? Yeah, maybe I am. Yeah, maybe I am. I mean, like I think um, uh, uh, as far as that's concerned, I, I think you could certainly say that both Canet and, and Gardner. I think uh, I think Canet and Gardner are, gonna, are both going to finish much much higher in the championship than uh, a lot of people maybe expect. Um, uh, I think that's going to be a surprise. But if we're talking sort of about sort of uh, uh, young rookies or whatever, um, I'm inter- I'm really interested to see what um, Tony Arbolino can do because I think Tony Arbolino has got all of the tools to... He was really unlucky last year to, to, to miss out on the championship. If he hadn't been sitting 
uh, in the wrong seat on the plane, then you know maybe he be would be talking about the MotoGP championship, or, you know, or, or sorry, the Moto Three champion, uh, Tony Arbolino. Um, uh, it, it might take a little bit of time to actually adapt, but I think he's really got what it takes. Yeah, and I think that it's going to be interesting, Dave, like you said, to see how he can be one of those rookies to really step up and see how he does. And uh, Adam, what about you? Who's going to be your world champion and who's going to be your big surprise? Well, for me, um, like I said on our Patreon special, um, I'm not going all super. Britain is, uh, the glorious Britain is back, but uh, Sam Lowe's was my tip uh, for, for world champion this year. Uh, again, I think the progress he made from being injured and very much out of the reckoning at the start of 2020 to, you know, achieving that run of results, um, you know, he was labelled maybe a slightly unfairly as a bit of a choker the last time he was going for the championship in Moto2. He buried that, I think, um, and some of his uh, actions at the end of the season were nothing short of heroic. So he's my tip. And in terms of surprises, I'm going to go uh, with Remy Gardner again. Um yeah, he's on even better equipment or a better team structure, I think, for t- for this season with uh, Aki Ayo. Uh, so I think he'll be, uh, you know, looking to fill the, the shoes of Miguel Oliveira and Brad Binder in that team. And uh, yeah, he's he's my, my surprise pick. Can Remy Gardner really be considered a surprise package for this season? Though? Like he's, he's been a writer, Dave, that everyone's kind of saw last year. He made a massive step forward. Now he goes into the Ayo team. You'd certainly expect Gardner to be able to to battle it out, win races, and uh, like we saw at the end of last season, actually, when he did win, that uh, he'll be able to build on that. Yeah, but I mean, look, consistency was always his bugbear, and um, uh, there were sort of flashes of talent. Um, and I think also Remy Gardner is one of those riders who, uh, you know, matures with age and get, gets better with age. I think he's um, um, grown in confidence, he's grown in maturity. I think he's one of the more interesting riders in the class at the moment. So I... I, I um, if you just looked at his results on paper, you'd say, "Yeah, all right, he might win a race, but uh, he's going to win. He's also going to finish sort of seventeenth a, a bunch of times." Um, and I don't think that's the case with him anymore. I really think that uh, he's going to be a regular at the front, sort of a week in, week out. Neil, just before we finish off, I just want to ask for your thoughts on Gardner because when you look at last season from Red Bull Ring until the end of the season, obviously he missed Mizano. But uh, when you look at his results all the way through that, he was pretty much top five, top six every week. He's, he's got that level of consistency and that was with the stop and go team. Now he goes to Io, you'd really expect him to be able to make that step where instead of it being a top five finish, it's a podium finish. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, as Dave mentioned, you know, he had never really had that consistency in his career before, but from the midpoint of last year, right through the end, he was, um, you know, with the, the side of Mizano, he was one of the most uh, consistent guys there. And there were a couple of race weekends, even when, like, for example, at Aragon, he's never really got on that well with Aragon, but I think he finished inside the top four. He had pretty awful food poisoning at one of the Valencia races, um, yet still managed to, uh, he qualified way down the grid, still managed to finish in the top seven. Good fight back. So, yeah, he found that consistency and he, he did it with, um, you know, starting the year in a pretty negative way like i mean he started the year having lost his crew chief and he basically the team was suffering some funding issues there was i think a bit of regret on his part that he had turned down the moto gp offer uh midway through 2019 to replace johan zarko um and you thought oh is, is that going to be just one of those decisions that he lives to regret but i think remy was so so impressive how he how he just changed his mindset basically and then forgot about all of those things, focused on the package that he had, which was a year-old Calax package in, in 
last year in 2020 um and and you know it was as consistent and as competitive as he was so going to io this year i mean yeah it, it's got to lead to further improvement i think from him yeah, and he goes really well in Qatar as well. He's had top five finishes there the last couple of years. So he can start the season really strong with a double header in Qatar. So that's going to be positive for Gardner. We're obviously starting the season strong. We've got, this is the Moto2 season preview. We had a Moto GP season preview with Simon Crafar yesterday. We've got a Moto3 season preview tomorrow. And then uh, thankfully we get into the race weekend and we can all take a few days off. That's how it's going to be, isn't it, Dave? <laughs> that's right. Yeah, yeah. just the, uh, just the uh, three hours sleep a night, that'll be fine. That's, that's plenty. No, no, no reason to be looking for sympathy with that, Dave. But uh, <laughs> thanks for joining us on the pod, Dave. Thank you very much, Steve. And uh, thanks for joining us, Neil. Thanks very much, Steve. Always a pleasure. And a big thank you to Adam Wheeler as well for joining us on the pod. Obviously, the four of us are going to be on the podcast all the way through this season, trying to bring as much additional content over the course of the year as well. So at patreon.com forward slash paddock pass podcast for $3 a month, you can check out a lot of extra shows that we do through the year. We've got the paddock pass podcast extra, which is just a debate that we have or we pick a topic of conversation. We have a chat about that each week and then we also have select interviews through the course of the season already in the off season we had brad binder for an interview which was just for our patreon subscribers and uh, some other content like that as well so check out patreon.com forward slash panic pass podcast and you can also follow us on social media at panic pass pod on twitter where you can drop us some feedback as well so for myself steve english from david emmett from neil morrison and from adam wheeler a big thank you for listening to this moto 2 season preview this episode of the panic pass podcast was produced by jensen beeler David Emmett, Steve English, Neil Morrison, and Adam Wheeler. It was edited by Brian Burnett. Music is provided by The Liberty. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com.